3: Welcome to a Wet Monday program. This is the Word to Stand Up for Life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and we're here every weekday at 4 o'clock to take your phone calls and answer your questions. And then, of course, on Thursdays, I have the privilege of having Paula join me for the program. We're here to take your questions about the Bible, what it says, what it means, how we can use it. Maybe you're going through something really difficult. Uh, We'll do the best we can. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. That's 340-9585. You can also call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. That's 630-5757. You can email your questions in by emailing questions at com, or you can send them in via our free mobile app. Because it's Monday. Oh, and by the way especially when the wet streets are wet. If you want to call from your car, the safest way to do it is by using the free KSLR mobile app. Just hit the call now button and you'll be connected directly to our studio. Well, because it's Monday and I hope you had a great weekend in church. I hope people got saved at your church. Yesterday for us was communion Sunday. It's always the first Sunday of every month. And uh, we had a a lot of people here and it was just really, really a good time. Uh, We finished finally Romans chapter seven. So, Uh, We're excited about what the Lord is doing Um, tonight, because it's Monday. We have our Sweet Summer Devotion Series, ladies, continuing. Uh, Our speaker tonight is Patty Morrow. That's the name you can put on your prayer list. Uh, Paula was cute when she was in the studio. She said, you know, one week we had our youngest speaker, 26, and today, uh, this week, tonight's study. Uh, we'll have our oldest of the ladies who are speaking, and she didn't tell me how old Patty was, so I don't know. But I love that kind of contrast. We get completely different perspectives, and Patty's story is, um, um, boy, she's been through a lot Uh, and she's overcome a lot, and she's brought a lot of glory to the Lord in the process. So Patty Morrow will be tonight. Uh, You can bring your husbands. Pastor Ken will be teaching the men at the same time, and also Pastor Nelly will be teaching the high school age youth um, at the same time as well. Seven o'clock, the streets are drying out. No rain is scheduled to come back, so everybody ought to be able to get here and be safe. I think we have two more Sweet Summer Devotions, Patty Morrow's, and then uh, I think Holly McPherson is next week, and I'll talk a lot about that. Uh, next week, because that one is one of the ones I've really been waiting for. So uh, we're ready for phone calls and questions, 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Our first question today comes from our email inbox from Scott. I says, Pastor is the intent in Proverbs twenty five, verses twenty one and twenty two the same as that of Paul's use of the verse in Romans chapter twelve, twenty. What is the meaning of burning coals upon a person's head? Scott, this is one of the most interesting questions, and you're absolutely right that that, that Paul was under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit quoting Proverbs twenty five. And those two verses says this if your enemy is hungry, Give him food to eat. If he's thirsty, give him water to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head, and the Lord will reward you. Now, when we read the Romans passage, sometimes we think, well, heaping burning coals on their head, that'll cause them, and and they deserve it. But that's not at all what the Lord has in mind here, not what Romans or Proverbs is talking about. Proverbs, very clearly, you're doing something nice. Now, here's the genesis of, of, uh, of this burning coals thing, Scott. Uh, In the ancient world, fire was uh, an essential. And usually women or servants would have this big... tray and they would take coals from one place to another if somebody needed fire you would take some coals out of your fire and you would take them to them and you do it by putting them those coals in this in this big tray and you carry it from one house to another so when your your neighbor comes to borrow your coals and you put those coals and he puts them on his head to carry them well you're burning putting burning coals on the head it's a nice thing that you're doing It's turning the other cheek. It's it's being uh, kind and loving to a neighbor. So it's exactly what Paul intended in Romans passage, uh, and and under the inspiration of spirit, as I said, he is quoting Solomon in Proverbs chapter twenty-five. So the heaping of burning coals on his head to to our flesh—that sounds like yeah—they're finally getting what's coming to them. It's exactly the opposite. It's loving your neighbor, loving your enemy, not responding to their attack with your own, but instead responding by love. So, Scott, I hope that answers your questions. 340-9585, let's go to Maria calling on line one. Maria, thanks for calling. You're on the air.
2: Hi, how are you today?
3: I'm doing really well. Thank you.
2: Great. Um, my question is, um, what are your thoughts about generational um, curses? And I'll go ahead and hang up.
3: Okay, thank you, Maria. Once you to listen closely. There's no such thing. So don't buy the books. Don't listen to the messages. Don't get trapped in these deliverance ministries. There's no such thing as a generational curse. When in Exodus, in the law, God uses that curse, what we call a generational curse, Uh, he says for three or four generations but but for those who love me for a thousand generations the the idea there is contrast and there's no generational curse God over and over in the Old Testament says a man suffers for his own sins or experiences the consequences of his own sins not for sins of another it is completely out of the character and nature of God to uh, punish you Maria for something that your ancestor did so there's no such thing as a, general, as a generational curse. It is superstition. It has caused a lot of harm. I've been here at Calvary Chapel for 22 and a half years, and I've had a whole bunch of people come from these terrible, terrible, terrible teaching churches, usually the charismatic or the prosperity kind, because this gives people uh, uh, something to blame for their sin. I'm, not, I'm the way I am, but it's not my fault. It's always our fault. Now, here's the proof text, Maria, Second Corinthians 5.17. If anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. The minute we give our heart to Jesus Christ, we don't need to be delivered from anything anymore because we have already been delivered. And nobody has the power to curse. Nobody has the power to to, to ruin your life. And yet we who are Christians, we so often will swallow that hook, line, and sinker because that's what somebody's teaching. And frankly, it appeals to our flesh. If I can sin and know it's not my fault, then they can't really blame me for my sin, so God must be okay with me. So there's no such thing. And in this listening audience, Maria, there's a bunch of people that go to churches that teach that and they act like it's no big deal. It's a very, very big deal. So generational curses, deliverance ministries, they are unhealthy, they are blasphemous, Um, stay away from them, Uh, they they cause nothing but, but trouble, they misrepresent the very character and nature of a God who promised to deliver you at the cross. So no such thing as a generational curse, I hope that helps. Thank you, Maria. Appreciate the call. Three four zero ninety five eighty five. Here is a question from Nacho from our mobile app. He says, "Who are the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly realms?" In Ephesians chapter three, verse ten. Um, Nacho, whenever you see that, and it comes uh, throughout Scripture, there's there's lots of references to them, both Old and New Testament. Uh, The rulers and authorities, those are the heavenly beings, the angels, the demons. There's good ones and there's bad ones. And it always refers to a hierarchy of angel, Uh, angels like uh, Lucifer was, angels like Michael, those who have really, really, really great power, and then sort of ordinary angels. And there's angels uh, of of all flavors in in the spiritual realm Uh, and demons as well, by the way. Um, so there are some that are more powerful than others. Jesus said uh, of one particular, this kind only comes out uh, by prayer and fasting. Um, there are really, really strong, powerful demons, some of them so much so that Jude says that they are chained in everlasting darkness, being reserved for the day of judgment, being reserved for the great tribulation. So um, that's always a reference to, to angelic beings, Uh, rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms that distinguishes them from us so when paul in ephesians is talking about uh, what's going on in heaven what god has done uh, he's telling us that we no longer have to be um, uh, under the subjection of those fallen angels for example uh, when we get to ephesians chapter 6 and we see the, the 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 shield of faith, we see all of the the pieces of armor for spiritual warfare Uh, those are the things that we can put on every day to counteract anything that the enemy can, can do, so I hope that helps Nacho, you know we have a tendency in our culture to do one of two things with the devil and with demons, we either blame them for everything giving them way too much credit or we sort of ignore them like they're not real and, well, I don't have to worry about that. Well, the balance between those two extremes is where we find the truth. They are very, very powerful. They, they want to destroy you. They have supernatural power and ability. Um, so we have to respect them. On the other hand, we need not fear them because we serve Jesus. He calls us his big brother. Uh, or he, we, he said we can call him his brother, our brothers so he's our big brother, and that means that we don't need to fear them, and that whenever we're with Jesus, we don't have to worry about any kind of a spiritual attack at all. When we're with Jesus, then all we need to do, Nacho, is, is uh, just sort of let him do the fighting. You know, in the book of Daniel, the prophecy of Daniel, when Daniel got the visions of the very, very end, in Daniel chapter 9, We turn to chapter 10, we see sort of a picture of the spiritual warfare going on behind the scenes, and what we see there is the answer to Daniel's vision was held up for 21 days in the spirit realm, so much so that Michael was dispatched, so that the angel sent with the vision, sent with the message, could get through, because that's how... Powerfully, he was being resisted by an even more powerful angel. So, I hope that helps, Nacho. Thank you very, very much. Always a re- reference to uh, angelic beings, uh, either the good ones or the fallen ones. Here is a question from Seth: this is Pastor Ron. what did Jesus mean in Luke 14? When he said that we had to hate our mother and father. Now, obviously, uh, Seth, we know that he didn't mean we have to hate him. You know, I can't stand you, Mom. I can't stand you, Dad. That thing at all. But he's talking here about priorities. He's talking here uh, about value to uh, each of us. And in the context, what he's talking about very simply is uh, when I say to do something, you, you, you must obey me, even if your father and your mother, your sister and your brother, if others hate it, you've got to make a choice. Am I going to follow you? Or am I going to do what people say? And so it's very Jewish in its literature, or, or, or I'm sorry, in its literary form, and it's sort of a relativism thing. So I love Jesus, and if my mom or my dad tells me that I can't serve him, then by contrast, I have to hate them. In other words, just make a choice. Who are you going to respond to? You're going to respond to mom and dad who draw you away from Jesus. Are you going to respond to the word of the Lord that comes to you? You know, in in Jesus's particular case, um, his family. Uh, we know this. We thought he was. They thought he was crazy. Now this is hard for us to understand because we know of all people, Mary knew who he was. But there was a lot of pressure coming from the family. This is after evidently Joseph uh, was already dead and the family was going through some difficult times and now jesus was getting all of this unwanted attention negative attention and causing the family difficulty and james and jude and the sisters and the brothers they they expected that jesus as the oldest child the oldest son he would take over the role of the father of the house he's the one who would provide he's the one who would give direction Uh, He's the one that they would look to. And now Jesus is all over the place, and he's doing all these miracles, and he's attracting the the attention of the religious leaders. And in the process, they think he's out of his mind. Literally, the word is crazy. And so they go to take charge of him, we're told. And so when they get to the place where Jesus is speaking, and there's these big crowds of people they send somebody and tell Jesus and his mother and his brother and his sisters are out here. We want to talk to him. And so when that message was delivered to Jesus, Jesus simply said, who are my mother and my brothers and my sisters? And then he would sort of gesture with his arm. And he would say, oh, only these who do the will of my father. These are my mother and my brothers and my sisters. In other words, they're my focus now. Jesus made the right choice. So he doesn't mean to hate the way we in our culture consider hate it just means that we love Jesus more and we do what he says even if we get pressure from family not to do so says so it's a good question uh, but, but this is one of the reasons that, that study the culture Um, uh, It's really important because we have to be able to make these kinds of references to rightly interpret these kinds of passages. It's so valuable for us, so practical in our time, uh, Seth, because we have families literally divided when their children come to faith in Christ. We have husbands and wives divided when one or the other comes to Christ. Uh, we experience this all the time people from a Catholic background come to Calvary Chapel they get saved and their parents the family especially the moms treat them like they have deserted the faith like they're dead to me you know kind of thing And and that's a really hard thing you want your mom to love you and yet you've broken her heart and that's when we have this kind of choice Jesus' word is simply this follow me I'll go get them but you follow me. And that's the context of Luke 14 and the many other references in Scripture. One of my favorite passages, Seth, comes from the Old Testament, 2 Kings chapter 2, when Elijah comes and puts his mantle on Elisha because Elisha is going to be his successor. And by putting his mantle on him, what he's saying is, you're the one that God has chosen, now follow me. And and Elisha says, well, let me first go back and and, and kiss my father and my mother. And and Elisha's response is, hey, what is that to me? Now, this is no longer between you and me, this is between you and God. And and Elisha runs back, says goodbye to his family, gives them a kiss. He goes out, he completely destroys his yoke of oxen slaughters them. Um, uh, he, tear, he, he burns all the potential bridges to his past because he knows the man of God, Elijah, has called him, and now he's going to follow him. And for 10 years he will do that before Elijah is taken up uh, to heaven in a chariot. So um, he cut all of his ties And that's exactly what Jesus means when he said this in Luke chapter 14. Seth, thank you very, very much for the question. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is a question from Gloria. Pastor Ron, how do I respond to someone who says that Jesus never said one thing about homosexuality, so he must have been okay with it. Well, there's a lot of things that Jesus didn't talk about. Jesus didn't talk about uh, pedophilia. Jesus didn't talk about um, kleptomania. He, He didn't talk about a lot of things. Jesus had a mission, and it was to declare that the law wasn't enough to save Jews. His mission, remember, was to the Jews. And the only way you can have eternal life is to believe in Him. I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Now, here's where I want us to think critically. Because Jesus said a lot about homosexuality. He said it because He's God. And people who take this argument, it's like, well, God the Father is mean and God the Holy Spirit is mean because they said bad things about homosexuality. But Jesus is the God of love, and he didn't say anything. He is God. He is God. Jesus couldn't be separated from his Father's will. He said he only said and heard what he saw his Father uh, uh, do and say. He can't be separated from the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit came from him. I will send another the Holy Spirit, the Counselor, the Comforter, and He will be with be, be with you always to the end of the age. So, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are in perfect unity. I pray, Father, that they will be one as we are one. So, when God, in the Old Testament, in the Numbers, in Leviticus, in other places, says that homosexuality is an abomination to God, when Paul says in the New Testament that, that uh, a woman lying with women and doing indecent things with women and men doing indecent things with men is sin. That's God speaking, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Jesus affirmed that marriage was a union, a covenant between a man and a woman, and He did so repeatedly. Now, Glory, here's the other one, and this for me is the, the one thing that ought to settle the issue forever. We Christians don't have to apologize for what God says. Jesus was there with the destroying angels. The destroying angels acting on Jesus' orders when fire and brimstone fell on Sodom and Gomorrah. Raining down destruction. Jesus was there. He did say very powerfully, that sodomy, that's the reference in the Old Testament, homosexuality, is sin. So Jesus was there. So remember, Jesus wrote the, the Old Testament. He wrote the New Testament. And because he was God, he, he has to agree with the Father, he has to agree with the Holy Spirit. They have to agree with one another. So this is sort of a, a, a vacuous argument. And they'll. Put it in, it's just Christian. Well, but God wants us to love people. It's not loving to condone or approve or affirm a lifestyle that is going to result in somebody being separated from God forever and ever and ever. We, of course, call that hell. So Jesus said a lot about it. He just didn't talk about it. One other comment culturally. To a Jew, the sin of homosexuality was a capital offense. And it was something that they wouldn't... It just wasn't cultural, culturally relevant to Jews. Now, in other parts of the world, at the same time, it was, to be sure. Uh, later, Paul will talk about all of the wicked things going on in Corinth and in other places in the, in the Roman Empire. However, to the Jews in Jerusalem to whom Jesus was sent, homosexuality was not an issue so just because it is the the most ignorant hermeneutic of all, Gloria to say that because he didn't say anything about it, it must be okay there's a lot of things that Jesus didn't say anything about but we know our sin final thought in the New Testament also written by God the Holy Spirit another Jesus Paul, as clearly as language can possibly make it, condemns homosexual behavior. And God doesn't change. I know the world that we live in says, well, that's really old-fashioned, you know, you're being a bigot. Well, it's okay to be old-fashioned because God is old. But you can tell by the number of questions and calls that we've had on this one issue over the last just two months. This is an issue that's not going away in the church, and this is an issue that we Christians have to be able to understand and explain. We've got to be able to show people the love in these commandments. God doesn't want you not to be in love. God doesn't want you not to have fun. God prohibits those things that are bad for us. One only needs to look at the statistics on the average life expectancy of a practicing homosexual male, as opposed to the average average uh, or the expected life uh, the, the expected life uh, duration of a heterosexual male. These things are harmful, and most of all, because sin separates us from God. So Gloria, don't apologize. Just explain to them. Jesus talked about it a lot. One final I know I said that would be my final thought, but I just said something else occur to me. The next time somebody who doesn't know the Lord, somebody who's living in an actively willful, sin sinful lifestyle, tells you, Well, Jesus never said anything about it, ask him the question, how would you know what Jesus said? When's the last time you studied your Bible? Well, I know it says somewhere. Well, stop. All you did is you got that off the Internet. So, Gloria, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid at all. You know, I've told you over and over and over on this radio program that this is going to be the issue that divides the Christian church. It's dividing the church all over the world. And the choice that we have to make is, are we going to be Jesus' church or are we going to be a church of the culture that we live in? And if we're going to be a church of the culture that we live in, we have absolutely no power. If we're going to be Jesus' church and he's the head, then we who are believers must agree with him. No choice. 340-9585. We've got 30 minutes left in the program. We'd love your live calls and questions. 340-9585. We will be back in two minutes.
1: to stand on for life we're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll free 877-630-KSLR now here's pastor ron arbaugh
3: welcome back to the second half of the monday edition of the program 340-9585 or toll free 877-630-KSLR i have a question from ian would you allow someone to teach or lead a Bible study in your church if they had ideas that opposed yours? Ideas like old earth or gay marriage. Ian, why would I want to do that? Why in the world would I want to do that? Um, you know, the people that come to Calvary Chapel, and I'm just one pastor, but, but I think I can rightly represent the heart of most pastors. We love our people. I mean, we love them. We don't want to confuse them. Our job isn't to expose them to a myriad of ideas or, or, or different cultural thoughts. Our responsibility is to teach them the Word of God. So why would I have somebody come in my church and they're going to say, well, you know, Adam and Eve weren't really the first people. The, the earth is millions or millions or billions even years old. Why would I do that? When I've taught Genesis twice through already in our years here, and I've stood up there and told the church what it says. Why would I have somebody contaminate the people I love with any kind of an idea that is contrary to what the Bible teaches? So the answer is no. And I I don't know if you asked the question in a challenging way. I choose to to, to hope that you didn't. But why in the world, when we belong to Christ, his church, why would we want to introduce ideas that are really damnable? Now, I I want to be clear. I say that, and, and, and the Holy Spirit checks me here. There are people that believe in an old earth who are going to go to heaven they're just wrong they're people that don't believe that Adam and Eve were real people certainly not the first people made directly by the hand of God and it's possible to, to, to hold that error and still be saved but I can tell you one thing if you hold those doctrinal positions you certainly can't be fruitful for the kingdom of God you certainly can't really know the heart of God or the character of God Or maybe it's just that people don't care, Ian, because they don't want to be under the authority of God. Gay marriage is sin. It's a sin unto death if people die in that condition. Believing in an old earth, or that Adam and Eve aren't real. Well, those are people that are believing something that infers implicitly that Jesus is a liar because he affirmed Adam and Eve he affirmed the creation story so again this is just more indication that too much of our church culture is getting swept up in the world we're to be separate from the world apart from it, we're in it, we're to be a light in it we're to be salt in it but we're not to agree with the world and Ian again I don't know your motive for asking the question But here's my heart for you. I I want you to fall in love with Jesus. but, But it has to be the real Jesus. I want you to learn to take him at his word because he's trustworthy. I want you to choose your relationship with God above your relationship with people in this world. It's time for we who are believers to stand firm and declare the truth of God's word as it's revealed to us not as it has been twisted and perverted by a culture that simply wants an excuse for their sin so Ian the answer to the question is no I would never allow someone to teach people I love confusing ideas and certainly not doctrinally wrong ideas that's why God gives pastors and teachers as a gift to the church. People that want to come in and confuse the church. Well, they, they might be a gift from the enemy. 340-9585. Vince wants to know, uh, Why did Jesus say to his disciples that some of them would see him coming in his kingdom and glory? They all died, and Jesus didn't come. Well, Vince, here's something that we know. Here's a great hermeneutic. When Jesus is speaking, we know he's not lying. So as you're studying your Bible, you look for the obvious explanations. Now, this is an easy one. I tell you the truth, there are some standing here who will see all my glory, Let's see the kingdom of God in its fullness um, before, they, before they die, before they pass away. Uh, he was talking to his disciples He didn't say all of them would see. He said some. And in every instance in your New Testament, in all of the Gospels, that statement is followed immediately by the Mount of Transfiguration transformation. And we know that James and John and Peter were the sum of them who would see God in His glory, in His fullness. And they saw Him straight away. So, the chapter divisions sort of cause us to lose focus of that. But Vince, in every case, remember, there were no chapter and verse divisions in the original manuscripts. Man created those in an uninspired way, simply to make it easier to find things in the Bible, to catalog things. But in every instance, that's immediately followed by the transfiguration of our Lord and uh, it was that glorious moment, uh, so glorious, in fact, that both John and Peter, many, many, many years later, writes about that moment. We were with him on that mountain. They were the some who saw him. Jesus was there with Peter, James, and John. So, Vince, that's the answer to your question. Some of them did see them, and that was those three, his inner circle. Three four zero ninety five eighty five. Jacob says in Acts chapter 2 everyone spoke in tongues. Does that mean that everyone now should speak in tongues as well? Um, No, and Jacob, in Acts chapter 2 not everyone spoke in tongues. Now, what we have to understand about Acts chapter 2 is that it was a one-time only event, It was the entrance, and what an entrance it was, of the Holy Spirit. Go to Jerusalem and wait for the power from on high, Jesus told them. And so they went and they waited. And after Jesus ascended from heaven, 40 days uh, he'd spent with them, teaching them. Well, 10 days later, on the Jewish feast of Pentecost, they were all gathered together, and the Holy Spirit made his entrance the sound of a mighty rushing wind. Everybody heard the sound of the mighty rushing wind. Why don't we in charismatic circles expect that that's going to happen every time? They saw cloven tongues of fire sitting over the heads. That was the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And of course then they all spoke in other tongues. But remember, the crowd didn't speak in tongues. It was just the disciples. And later... When they repented, they would be filled with the Holy Spirit, the crowd. Because you have to repent, you have to accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, before the Spirit can come and live within you. So not everyone spoke in tongues. Secondly, the notion that everyone should speak in tongues is contrary to what Paul teaches in writing to the churches in Corinth. Not everyone will speak in tongues. He makes it clear, asking the rhetorical question. Do all speak in tongues? Do all prophesy? The answer is no. So, speaking in tongues is a gift of the Holy Spirit. It is not the singular evidence of being filled with the Spirit any more than cloven tongues of fire or sound of mighty rushing wind is. So, Jacob, no, everyone won't speak in tongues. Now, let me balance that briefly. I wish everyone did. Now, I, I can say that because that's what Paul said. I would that you all spoke in tongues more than I do. It's a great gift. We should want it. We should receive it by faith. I personally believe that Jesus will give it to anybody who will receive it. And it's the one gift. It's, it's considered the least of the gifts because it's it's not horizontal. It doesn't bless others, but it blesses your relationship with god it edifies that relationship it's 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 you and jesus in those private moments it's not for public consumption and it is a gift that we shouldn't be afraid of it's a gift that we should welcome so jacob if you want the gift of tongues just ask him for it he said he would give it to you so receive it by faith and begin exercising the gift don't wait don't wait for something to happen to you because every gift given by God must be received by faith so how do you do it you simply say Jesus I want it because I want to be closer to you and then you say because you promised me good gifts Lord I'm going to receive it and then you I hate to use the word practice but like with all gifts especially this one because there's so much spiritual interference it seems silly it doesn't make sense the enemy will immediately come and tell you oh that's not God that's just you making it up but it's okay you can trust the Lord so Jacob I hope that helps let's go to Lisa from New Brunfels on line one Lisa thanks for calling you're on the air
2: hi Pastor Ron
3: (laughs) our Lisa hi Lisa (laughs)
2: <laughs> I'm my favorite pastor. How are you?
3: I'm really good now. I'm even better because you said that.
2: Oh, you're sweet. Hey, um, okay, my question for you, I'm going to ask, and then I'm going to hang up. And I know you just taught on this on, I think, two Wednesdays ago, but I need deeper understanding. Um, in First Samuel 16 and verse 13, when um, Samuel's anointing David and he's pouring the oil on him, And it says, and from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came upon David in power. I'm so wrestling with what is the difference between that and as New Testament Christians having the Holy Spirit live in us. And specifically related to that passage, because it says from that day on, like it never left him. Does that make sense?
3: Yeah, it makes perfect sense, but the, the difference, Lisa, and you and you're going to listen off the air. So thank you yeah, very I'm much for hang calling. So. Bye. I love okay. you. <laughs> thank you. We love you too. Um, the, the difference is 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 the word upon. Uh, I know the Old Testament is written in Hebrew, but the Septuagint, which is in Greek, the word upon is the word epi, and I just did a, 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 a what I think was a good study, and I'm not patting myself on the back believe me, but uh, l- let, me, let me recommend to all of you with questions about the Holy Spirit to listen to last Friday night's study, the first study in the book of Acts. It's very important that we understand the relationship that we all have with the Holy Spirit. Um, so you can go to calvaryessay.com and it's there, just the last Friday night study that we did. Uh, in this particular case, um, Samuel anointed him, um, uh, and it says that day the Spirit of the Lord didn't come in David, but came upon David in power. That doesn't mean that it never left him because we know that there were times when David was impotent in terms of power because of sin in his life. But it just means that the Spirit of God was with David from the very first day he was anointed until the day he died. The Spirit of God was with him so that whatever he needed to do as king of God's people, as the shepherd king, there was the power to do. It doesn't mean that the Spirit of God came in him uh, like like he's in you, Lisa, or like he is in me. David and Moses and all of the Old Testament uh, heroes, Abraham and all the others, they would have died to exchange places with us. They they wouldn't be able to comprehend that the gift of the Holy Spirit that Paul calls Christ in us, the hope of glory. So their relationship with the Holy Spirit was only uh, an upon experience and the Spirit would come upon David. Um, we remember the Spirit even came upon Samson. He was able to kill a thousand Philistines with, a, with a, the the jaw of a donkey. So the Spirit of God came upon those called by God to do these special things. And certainly, uh, we know, we studied uh, uh, last Wednesday night, and we're going to finish it this uh, Wednesday night, uh, David. Uh, killing Goliath. That was a spirit of God that came upon David. It was a spirit of God that guided that rock into the, the, the forehead of the giant. So a spirit of God came upon David in power, and that spirit was always there when David needed the power of God. Now, like any person who sins, you break fellowship with God. But unlike you and me, Lisa, um, David didn't have the power that he would never leave you or forsake you. So the fact that from that day on the Spirit of the Lord came upon David in power, don't infer that the Spirit had never left him. We, we saw it with Saul just before that. The Spirit of God came upon him in power. He did marvelous things. But then the Spirit departed from him because of his sin. David's sin was not willful sin. David made some horrible choices. Uh, D- David was a, a, a fleshy man, just like we're all fleshy humans. Uh, but, but David was also the best repenter in the history of the world, at least from my perspective. Uh, and that's because he loved God. But the relationship with the Spirit of God in the Old Testament and in the New Testament is, is, is an infinite distance. They had a distant relationship, and the Spirit of God would come on them in power, but for you and for me, not only does he come upon us in power, triggered by our obedience, but he comes first within us. And he's promised, of course, never to leave us or forsake us. So, Lisa, I hope that answers your question. If I messed up and didn't give you the right information, ask me Wednesday night. God bless you. Thank you. Three four zero ninety five eighty five for your live calls, uh, questions and calls. Uh, I I was just reminded that Matthew called with just a couple of minutes left in the program last Friday, and I told him I would address uh, his question uh, on our show today. I told him I'd do it at the beginning. So, Matthew, I apologize. I forgot. But I was just reminded, so I hope you're listening. And your question was about predestination and are there people that God doesn't choose because he knows what they're going to do? Uh, And the answer is God never chooses anybody for hell. But you're right in the sense that there are people that God doesn't choose for heaven because he knows they won't believe. Now, twice in Scripture, we're told in Romans chapter 8, verse 29, and 1 Peter chapter 1, uh, verses 1 and going on into 2, uh, we're told that God's basis of his cho- choice is foreknowledge. So God knows those who are gonna choose him back and what I tried to say very quickly on Friday at the end of the program was Romans eight twenty nine is so special, so personal for me, because what it means is that God because of his foreknowledge knew that this jerk was going to choose him in February of 1991. So all of the awful, evil, wicked things I did before February of 1991, uh, all of the times I blasphemed God and misused him, all the times I treated people horribly, people that God loved. um, You know what? None of those things ever caused God to change his mind. Why? Because his foreknowledge knew that I was going to choose him. And that means he set his love upon me, Matthew. Matthew. He set his love upon me and he refused to take it back. That's only God who can love like that. And so God chooses those who are coming to heaven based on his foreknowledge. There's no other basis given in Scripture for God's choice. We go all the way back to Exodus chapter three, nineteen, when God was sending Moses to Pharaoh, let my people go, tell him, Let my people go. But verse nineteen in chapter three says, But I know Foreknowledge, but I know He will not let them go unless a mighty hand compels him. So God was simply saying, "I'll be that mighty hand, and I'll compel Him to do what I'm going to do through the the, the the judgments that I'm going to cause to fall upon Egypt." So it's always His foreknowledge, and there's a lot of speculation. There's a lot of of systematic theology that misses this point. There is no other biblical choice or basis for choice, rather, that's given for predestination. And predestination or election, the terms are interchangeable, is always and only spoken of in terms of salvation, never, Matthew, in terms of people going to hell and spending eternity separated from God. God gives everybody the choice. Does he, in his sovereignty, know who's going to choose him? Yes. But that doesn't mean he keeps others from choosing him because they're not chosen. And that's the problem with Reformed theology or Calvinism. The problem is that we make these logical assumptions that uh, really fall flat um, and fly in the face of the truth of what Scripture reveals about the character and the nature of God. So, Matthew, I hope that was a little bit more coherent than what I tried to do in just a minute and a half the other day. Thank you very, very much. 340-9585, how are we doing on time? Oh, we're inside four minutes, I guess. Um, here is a question anonymously. Uh, I love this question. What does it mean to walk by faith and not by sight, as it says in Second Corinthians chapter 5? Anonymous, here's what it means. It means we trust God. It means we walk with Jesus, even in the face of circumstances. You know, we're a culture that really wants to walk by sight, I'm talking the Christian culture, rather than by faith. It's so easier to look at things and make decisions about what we should do or shouldn't do. This seems right to me, or this seems wrong to me. Instead, the Christian, man or woman, is to say to Jesus, Lord, I want what you have for me, so I want to walk by faith instead of by sight. And when we do that, oh, how it pleases God. Hebrews 11:6 says, without faith it's impossible to please God. If you're walking according to sight, You never can please God. It's just that simple. If you're doing what seems right to you, if you're doing what makes the most sense or is the most logical, you're not pleasing the Lord. He wants us to take steps of faith. Case in point. Peter, Lord, if that's you, bid me to come out to you on the water. Well, it doesn't make any sense to walk on water. Everybody knows humans can't walk on water. But Jesus said, Come, Peter. And Peter got out of the boat and he was doing fine until he got distracted by the circumstances around him. But can you get the sense of how pleased Jesus was? I had a question earlier in the program about the gift of tongues. I'll tell you, I think the gift of tongues is one of those things where God smiles when somebody's silly enough to believe that this unknown language has some sort of value. And our belief in that is based only on the fact that Jesus said so. I think it pleases Him. I've never felt God was more pleased with me than I, than in those times when I took impossible steps of faith. And I had this sense that He was right there. Now it didn't bring me great comfort in the sense that I had no idea how things were going to work out. But you see, when we take these steps of faith, walking by faith instead of by sign anonymous, What we experience is that smile of God in a very practical way. And though I was terrified, I still live every day terrified. If you ask anybody who comes to this church, I say that a lot. Every day of my life, I'm terrified of messing something up, I'm terrified of being wrong, but I've chosen to trust Him. I'm going to walk with Him, and in the process, He's taken us to these places and done things with us and through us that we would have missed out on had we only walked according to reason. And I think this is what a lot of Christian lives, a lot of churches as well, are missing out on. In churches, in this culture, we do what every other church does. We send people out in the mission field. Uh, We do it the way other mission-oriented churches do it. We we tell them, go raise your money, and then you go. If you raise your money, it means God's in it. No, if God tells you to go, you go. That's what it means to walk by faith. For Paula and for me, Anonymous, it meant very simply that when he told us to come to a place that we'd never been to, we didn't know a single person here. Those was 22 and a half years ago, he said, go to San Antonio. Well, Lord, why? That's where I'll be waiting for you. The only thing that we knew for sure about San Antonio, Texas, was that Jesus was going to be here waiting for us when we arrived. And we understood that meant whatever work we were going to do, this was the place. And people tried to talk us out of it. People thought we were absolutely crazy. We didn't have any money. We, we, we didn't have any plan. But we couldn't wait to get here and meet up with Jesus to see what he had in store. And as hard as it was, I can tell you, I wouldn't. Looking back, I wouldn't miss out on one minute of it. So, Anonymous, I guess I'm trying to encourage you to take some risks. Take some risks. I tell our church here all the time, we're inside one minute now, so I don't have time for another question or call. But I tell our church all the time to get out on that ledge with Jesus. Take some risks. Don't be foolish, but when God is the one prompting you, do whatever He says, and when you do it, and then you're terrified... Then you can say, Jesus, I did it because you told me to do it. It's your problem. And that's the only thing that's kept me both sane and alive for the 22 and a half years that we've been here. Anonymous, thank you for the question. Thank you for listening. Thank you for the calls. You've been listening to the Word to Sin Up For Life. Remember, sweet summer devotions tonight, ladies, at 7 o'clock. Pastor Ken, Men's Study, and Pastor in High School age youth. I'll see you tomorrow, Lord willing, at 4 o'clock. God bless.